Hello, this is Taylor Petrie, editor of Dialogue, here with Andy Pitcher Davis, the art editor of Dialogue. This is episode nine of Dialogue Heritage, a podcast series exploring the history of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, through the lens of LDS history, American history, and academic history. Each episode, we discuss a five-year period of the journal's history from the founding in 1966 until today. This week, we're discussing 2005 to 2009. This is so much fun. (laughs) Yeah, like our past with Mormonism is so much fun. So I'm glad (laughs) we're diving into this one. It's it's been an an interesting deep dive. And I also want to especially thank our listeners because I'm often getting very nice notes about how much people are enjoying this series. So if you like it, please rate us on the podcast uh, app that you listen to us in. I've enjoyed those little notes also. And, And it keeps me going because... It's just such an honor and a privilege to be part of the series. So thank you again to our listeners. I really appreciate it. Andy, I don't think either of you, either you or I quite realized how much work it was going to be to read through the thousands of pages to prepare for each one of these episodes. And uh, so, again, I'm glad that people have enjoyed it. Well, and this is the thing, like all the accolades to our past editors, like our past editors must have worked so diligently to make these pages work. And, and, I'm, and, and I know that there are some criticisms against dialogue or the church or whatever in this era that are complicated, but it is true, Taylor. Like, those that have contributed to this work really stand out to me as, as inspiring and as ones as I want to follow and, and support. I totally agree. I this this is such an interesting period and one where both you and I maybe come into dialogue story a little bit more and I think we can maybe talk about that but let me give a little bit of the background to what's going on in dialogue just to kind of refresh our listeners memories and also to kind of place it in the broader historical context as well. Uh Levi Peterson is still the editor during this time period though uh there we're going to have a change over towards the end of it. And he's in Washington State for much of the time period that he's the the editor. Uh, We have, of course, the 40th anniversary in the spring of 2006. uh, And it's also a new day for Mormon studies. And and you mentioned this uh, while we were offline, but the beginning of the Mormon moment in broader popular culture and media. Uh, We have Oxford University Press uh, with Terrell Givens publishing a lot of new uh, books. We have uh, titles published by Cambridge and Columbia University Presses. It's the 200th anniversary of Joseph Smith's birth in 2005, and Richard Bushman's Rough Stone Rolling appears that year. Um, thing, other things that I hadn't really put together in this thing, but we've got Napoleon Dynamite coming out. Uh, <laughs> we also have uh, Twi- the Twilight series, and we got reviews of both of those. Um, Let's President not he- how powerful that is to bring Mormonism into the public domain and to public thought. Too, you know, yeah, right. it's it's before, of course, the Book of Mormon on on Broadway. But these were kind of ways that you know, at least insiders really. We took a lot of pride in these kind of big uh, blockbuster hits. You know, um, President Hinckley is going strong at the start of this period, but he passes away at the beginning of 2008, and President Monson takes over. Uh, there's actually a memorial to Hinckley in the summer of 2008 issue. I, I just wanted to briefly read from that because it brought back a lot of memories. Please Here's do, the- because honestly, Hinckley 
in this lens of looking back, and I know it's funny to say that hindsight is 2020 and we are 2020, um, I think it's very important with, with leadership that we have right now to recognize Hinckley's tenure and the work that he really did. I mean, because this is the foundation upon which, and in our next podcast, we'll launch into the Mormon moment, you know, after 2010, 11, 12. But this is the foundation upon which it is built. And Hinckley, he worked diligently to his death, you know. And so would you read closely the, the, the memorial to him? Yeah, this is just a, sel- a selection from it, but it was it was quite striking. And again, I, you and I, we both sort of came of age in the Hinckley years, I think, uh, as, as uh, uh, thinkers. And so this, this stuck out to me. Here's the quote. From the perspective of dialogue, the church under President Hinckley evolved toward a greater appreciation of free expression of ideas, research, and thought. The intellectual tensions of the period immediately preceding his presidency seem muted. With great fanfare, the church archives and leaders became more accessible to scholars and the media. Latter-day Saints everywhere loved President Hinckley for his ready wit and wise discourse upon the principles of the gospel. His presidency was an amazing tenure, and we are all beneficiaries of his positive and revelatory stewardship. We will miss him. Look, I still miss the man and the prophet. Like, like it is, those are truer words. And what's happening behind the scenes a little bit, Taylor, in scholarship, of course, Jean England in our last podcast um, left BYU under not great conditions, you know. And what also happened was this sort of off, like to the side moment where the socio- sociology department also left BYU and went to the Mormon, to the church archive. This is the moment where we begin to open the Joseph Smith letters, right? The, the, the work that has come forward just now, the sociology department kind of follows suit. Jean went to UVU to create the Center for Mormon Studies. But the sociology department, many of those sociologists and um, many of those historians started working for the church formerly in the church history department and brought forth original doc- documents since Hinckley. And I think Hinckley really open that door in a way. And, and then we enter into this warm and fuzzy feeling of Thomas, S, Tom, Thomas Monson, who, who really did try to foster us in an old school sort of way. And so I thank you for just remembering Hinckley. But, but during Monson being around, during this time, remember that there are scholars behind, behind uh, the scenes who are working to bring the, Sm- the Joseph Smith letters to uh, light um, at this time, and and quite a few offshoots that are not necessarily based within the entire system of Brigham Young University. Um, these scholars start finding safe haven within other institutions, within the church history department, within. UVU within Logan uh, and USU. So, so I think it's important to know. And I think, and I, as I go into this, my, and I'll, and I will defer quite a bit because these essays are wonderful. There's, there's two things happening in my, in my opinion, there's a changing of the guard and Hinckley 
opens a door, you know, he opens Mormonism, not just uh, to scholarship, but to the American public in a way with his uh, very, very broad and what was it? Um, with his broadcasts, of, and, and, and which as an artist, I can say many of us as creatives really thought we'd have a, the same creative place within uh, Mormonism as our fathers and grandfathers. We were hopeful, but this time period is sensitive to me personally, because this is the foundation what will, for what will be become the Mormon moment. And whether that moment is sustainable or not, I can't speak to that. But I know that Hinckley worked as hard as he could as a man of his age to open that door to all of us. And, and there was a changing of the guard. I mean, we had Richard Bushman, I remember Rough Stone Rolling coming out and realizing and just saying out loud, this is a, this is a pivot point. Mormonism will change a certain direction. History is changing. It's becoming more honest. I remember uh, also saying there was a coming forward of Terrell Givens and his work with the Helen Whitney Progenic with Mormonism and, um, and, and, and that piece of work. I think a lot of, of Terrell's work also borrows from Gene England and has continued a, a t- continued tradition. But anyway, so I... I feel strongly about this time as being a point where so many unheralded scholars, academics, artists were working behind the scenes to optimistically work to build a foundation upon which there was a Mormon moment built. I totally agree. It does feel like there's a a kind of the beginnings of the turning over of a new leaf here in a number of different areas, but there are also some challenges that. I think the church faces and many individuals face. We, of course, have Prop 8 in 2008. Uh, the same-sex marriage debates inside the church are really heating up during this time period. Uh, the, the church is very clearly on one side of that, but many members are questioning that decision. Uh, Mitt Romney has put forward his first presidential bid in 2008, losing to John McCain in the primary, uh, but a very strong second place that lays the foundation for his later run again in 2012. Uh, But of course, there's a massive financial crash at the end of the Bush presidency, and uh, we have the beginnings of the Great Recession, and the world feels a little bit unstable during this time period. When Obama is elected president, it feels like a new day in politics as well, but there's a long battle on the economic recovery and, of course, on health care. In 2009 is when Christine Hagland officially takes over the reins as the editor. And And with such grace and presence. Yeah, she she was... I'm going to say this. You know, what's interesting is we did have that crash in 2008 that you bring up. There is something within old school Mormonism where we've had crash after crash, right? We have giant Joshua. We have other things. We are a sustainable people. And I think this is something that that regardless of politics and artwork, I think this is why some of those pieces that you talk about that kind of leak out of our inner circle into the public domain of, of Napoleon Dynamite, even, and Stephanie Nelson and, and these other things really are that they, they are in play because we are people who, who have gone through histories of complete annihilation and then regrowth over and over again, flood and 
and famines, but then bounty. And I think that Hinckley really set us up to survive this time period. I I totally agree. I totally agree. Uh, one of the fascinating things about Christine, which we'll, we'll talk a lot more about her, especially I think in the in our next episode, is that she's bringing in a lot of new voices, um, yeah. including my first contribution, a, a sermon hey. in the, from the pulpit section called "Practicing Divinity" that I had totally forgotten about, and I was flipping through for preparing for this. I was like, "Oh yeah, I forgot about that." <laughs> Can I ask you how old were you? Oh, I was in grad school still. I was probably maybe 29, something like that, you know. You still so, believe in peace? I think so. I should read. I didn't read it because I was like, I think I under, I think I remember that yeah, now that I, I saw it, you know. <laughs> I think we should believe in ourselves back then because I think it is that muster. I think right now and at, at this time, we're again at, at, at somewhat of a crash. And I think we should believe in ourselves where we showed up for the first time. Yeah. Anyway. So just as we're seeing a lot of new voices in this period, uh, it's worth mentioning that there is an in-memoriam tribute to Truman Madsen, an LDS philosopher and popular thinker who passes away during this time period as well. Uh, so some of that first generation uh, we're just seeing start to start to go. The first generation after World War II that was kind of the, the leading lights uh, are, are starting to pass away. Um, dialogue is also going online and, uh, back issues are going to be available at the university of Utah. And they made a CD or a DVD, I think of all of the back issues. And if you were a subscriber, you got a free DVD. I remember this one. And, uh, so the dialogue is really starting to enter the digital and the internet age. And I think that there's another interesting thing that's happening because of course, this is sort of the height of what was then known or is still known, I think as the blogger knackle. Um, uh, new ways for Latter-day Saints to sort of express themselves that in some ways are eclipsing. We've talked about all the other publications that are out there, but the internet really does kind of eclipse a lot of the print media, though Dialogue does do some partnerships with By Common Consent, one of the larger uh, blogs uh, in the olden days there. Um, and Dialogue articles are also getting discussed online rather than just in the letters to the editor. So I think we're also going to start to see fewer letters to the editor uh, going forward as people just decide to, you know, have conversations about these in their social media circles. Well, and I don't want to underestimate letters to the editor, because this is where our readers become contributors to our journal. And we would be nothing without our readers. And, and, and as they kind of move to an online forum, but the truth of the matter is I find so much encouragement and inspiration in the letters to the editor and and I and I and I hope we can sort of link in these other ancillary online uh, groups where our readers do want a more timely I mean there's a lot of cris- criticism towards dialogue as you bring up soon that we're not we're dialogue or whatever but but I think that the letters to the editor are super important and I love that our readership is as much uh, contributors to our journal as those who have positions at universities and whatever, because we're dealing with something that is universal. I completely agree. And speaking of great letters to the editor, let's start with maybe one of the most important ones that comes from this time period. It's actually printed as a standalone piece. It's Nate, Nate Oman's an open letter to the dialogue board. 
and the winter 2005 issue. So it's a great place to sort of start to launch this new period. And I think reflects a lot of the questions of identity for dialogue, its place in the past and in the future that many readers are, are confronting. And I think many of the new generation that Nate represented were trying to figure out. So let me just quote a little bit from this and get your reactions. I, I hope that you will not find an unsolicited letter presumptuous, but I wanted to give you my thoughts on what I see as dialogue's problems and some things it could do to improve. First, let me say, I wish dialogue well and I want it to succeed. I think dialogue has some serious problems. I, my thoughts on this are based on many hours of conversation about Mormon intellectual life with LDS grad students and other young people who care about such things. I hope that you are under no illusions. There are any number of talented young intellectuals who will be the leading Mormon scholars of this generation who are unwilling to publish in dialogue because of the perception that it is the in-house journal of the disaffected Mormon community and they have no desire to be associated with it. I think that the best way of mitigating these problems would be for dialogue to solicit articles aggressively from well-known, established, conservative scholars arguing for overtly conservative positions. Um, so I remember this piece because I was at Harvard with Nate when he was talking a lot about this stuff, and I was maybe one of those people who he is referencing of having long conversations about the place of dialogue in the future. And I remember that this, I think, was published also on the Times and Seasons blog and generated a lot of uh, oh, discussion. Blog. I love that blog. Yeah. And the first part of this letter is spot on. The second, the second half, look, is just a deep dive. But I, I think the first half of this letter is important because I do want to invite new scholars to be part of the voice of dialogue. I do. I don't think dialogue is letting down our people. I think uh, I think you as an editor are is I think you're I think you're fantastic. I support you completely as I do Christine who did an amazing job. I mean, we're talking about people who can spin straw into gold. But but I I I want the first half of this letter to play out because Nate Ullman is right in many regards. We are a forum that can handle diversity and and something difficult and we do want new voices to come in and this is what this time period kind of represents that new voices were coming in and new voices that became strong voices by 2011-2012 so there are all of these then back and forth responses to Nate some agreeing some fiercely disagreeing um i won't quote all of the the nice letters of things that are people saying nice things about uh, dialogue but one is an interesting one omen essentially asked the dialogue board to save the journal by killing it surely converting dialogue into yet another venue that would pass muster with the church's correlation committee would put the journal in its grave Oh my god. Quite sure. Yeah, I'm not quite sure that's what Nate was suggesting, but you can see there's some resistance among some of the readership to say no, we're not we don't want that. There are enough other places where we can get that. This needs to be something different. Well, they'll have to go through me first. <laughs> One of my favorites of kind of reflecting, one of the great things about the letters is that they, you get a lot of personal, how much people love dialogue and how much they hate dialogue all at the same time. And exactly. whenever, 
we've never been able to really nail it down in any of the eras of like, this was an era when everyone hated it. And this was an era when everyone loved it. Because as you and I've been going through this, sometimes I'm surprised at how much people either resisted or there's just sort of this perennial debate in all of these eras about, is it too liberal? Is it too conservative or whatever? So, but there's this great article from the fall of 2009 by a guy named Sam Bagwat called A Year of Dialogue, Thinking Myself Into Mormonism, which is the autobiography of a Stanford undergraduate and his conversion to, to the LDS church and how Dialogue's catalog gave him a testimony and helped him to decide to join the church. So You get get why this is so important, because Stanford is where Dialogue was was conceived. Absolutely. Bob Reese and and Francis Menlove and others, and even Wes Johnson, they're all at at Stanford. And so this is an important letter. Go ahead. Yeah, it's just just fascinating for all of the hand-wringing that many uh, LDS intellectuals do of dialogue being not faithful enough or people criticizing it. You've got people who are reading it and saying, that's the re- dialogue is why I joined the church. <laughs> you know, So <laughs> nobody seems to really be able to get the temperature uh, of what's really going on quite right. There are other great letters here. Uh, summer 2007. What has dialogue meant to me over the years? Dialogue has given me a sense of community, a sense that I'm not the only one out there. Dialogue is the member I wish were in my ward. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and I think that's for... I think there are no more strangers among us. And I think the idea that, that what is common among us is communion and community. And that is what dialogue for me personally and why I, I do so much work for the journal encompasses is the fact that, uh, that we are all in communion with each other as a, as a community. And there are no more strangers. And, and anyone who trod the path of Mormonism has a place within us. Yeah. Other people still didn't like it. There's a, a fall 2007 letter. I sensed a subtle movement of the tone of articles from friendly to cynical critical. I would open up some issues and not find a single article I felt enlightened my mind or strengthened my faith. And I ultimately decided that the publication was no longer worth my time. This particular <laughs> This particular writer says, I'm going to give you one more year to change my mind, basically, you know, and he subscribes for one more year. I don't know if, or if he resubscribed after that year or not. He doesn't write back again, but, uh, but... I imagine, like any family, he may or may not have resubscribed his own family and ours as well, because that's what we are as a family. Yeah. So uh, we mentioned at the top that this is also the time period of the 40th anniversary, fall 2006. Um, and throughout 2000, I'm sorry, in 2006, there are articles that are reflecting on the 40th anniversary in every issue. Uh, in fall 2006, there are four articles specifically reflecting on the early years from Wes Johnson, Francis Menlove, Paul Salisbury, and Bob Reese, uh, three of the founders, and then Bob as the first, uh, as the second editor, I guess. Um, uh, as you mentioned also, Gene England had passed away in, uh, at the time period of our last episode in the early 2000s. Uh, and so we start to hear more from some of the, uh, uh, other people who were founders. Johnson specifically was, uh, somewhat less present than Gene over the course of the history of the journal, but he gives us a lot of great context to his own involvement and the vision of the journal in these, uh, early years. 
and note some of the successes. The Udall letter, the Bush article, and other articles helped create a conversation about the priesthood issue since it was on the minds of many LDS members. But it was the Udall letter which broke, which broke what had amounted to a taboo on bringing up the subject in print. And I think it points to the ways... Taboo what? Taboo what? What's that? When you say taboo, what do you mean? The taboo about speaking about uh, uh, race and the priesthood in the church. Oh, yes, absolutely. And, and, she, and, you know, I think Jean's death was epic, but it's not, but like as, but it also created a bit of space. These other scholars could come forward. And I mean, I was around during this time, but, but, but I am so happy that we have these notes from Francis Menlove and Wes Johnson and others at this time. It is the opening of the door of these more quiet scholars who come forward who are much younger, like we were at the time. But I, I also think, I also believe that um, that dialogue is a place where we, that we are a family and we, we, we converse and we disagree with each other. And, and I'm happy that these essays from the older generation and the baton passed to a younger generation, some of, some of the essays presented, more practice than others, are presented. Yeah. I learned a lot that I didn't necessarily know about some of those early years. Even 40 years later, I felt yeah. like, you know, they were still telling their stories and, and, and giving us new insights into what was, what were some of the details of the history. As much of the history as had been told up until that point, including Devery Anderson's articles and including the many other anniversaries before, I still learned something new from these essays. So they're worth reading. Speaking yeah, of older generations. Absolutely. Yeah, speaking of older generations, there's uh, an interesting article in the winter 2006 issue uh, that is a survey that Robert Reynolds, John Remy, and Armand Moss had put together on who dialogue readers are. Uh, It's called Maturing and Enduring Dialogue and Its Readers After 40 Years. Uh, It's basically a follow-up to the same kinds of questions that they had asked in 1984, uh, close to the 20th anniversary. And in this survey, the results showed something really interesting about what they called the modal reader of dialogue. Mm. The, the modal respondent, quote, this, the modal respondent is a homeowning married man over age 50 <laughs> with a postgraduate degree. He is either in retirement or approaching it, resides in either Utah or California, is a lifelong member of the LDS church and a returned missionary, and attends sacrament meeting virtually every week. He, atten- he regularly reads the Enzyme and many other religion-oriented publications besides Dialogue. He has subscribed to Dialogue for, the, for at least 10 years, reads half or more of every issue, finds the editorial tone and content of Dialogue to be generally objective, and feels that the journal contributes to his spiritual and religious growth. He is inclined to be supportive of church programs and policies, although he might express some dissent privately to leaders before going along, and he regards the Book of Mormon as a divinely inspired document, even if it is not literal history. I found that to be so interesting to capture who was reading dialogue, and he basically goes on, they basically go on to say that this is more or less the same reader that they found 20 years ago. There sort of is a demographic, I guess, that we, that we t- tended to appeal to back then. Do you really believe that? 
Um, you know, those are at least the subscribers, right? And there's one of the interesting things that changes in between this that that time and this time is that the journal has become available online widely. It's become uh, free. And so I think that we tended to sort of appeal to that demographic as the subscribers, but I think that our the people who would have wanted to read it are a much, much broader audience than a approaching retirement or already retired older LDS white male, you know? Oh, and you know, if, if we have that broad of an audience, you know, then lucky for us, right? Yeah. And, and, and we do, and this is an appeal. Like, I mean, I think we need our audience as much as our writers. And, um, but I think a little bit, we offer a safe haven, you know? And so I love the letter, but but let's move on to those new scholars that are showing up during this <laughs> era. Cause, because name them, because they're all people we know well. Yeah, so I, I grouped these into a bunch of different categories here. And I, I started with it with theology, where I think that we see a lot of really interesting and innovative uh, articles. Uh, the aforementioned Nate Oman writes in Winter Two. Basically, one of the funny things is that people started saying, "Well, Nate, if you want conservative writers to write for dialogue, then why don't you write for dialogue?" So they started pressuring him to, to write articles, and he's written a couple of great ones during this time period. In Winter Two Thousand Seven, a defense of the authority of church doctrine. It's a really, really smart argument, and it's worth uh, taking uh, taking a close look at, as well as his follow up in the summer of two thousand nine. The Living or- Oracles, Legal Interpretation, and Mormon Thought. Uh, well, these- I bring up something where I would, I would welcome more lawyers within Mormonism and more of the BYU Law School to speak to, to the legality of Mormonism. And, and, and they are brilliant minds, and they don't, they don't write as much as Nate did as well. There's a kind of, you know, uh, Nate is brilliant in a lot of different ways, but there's just something really smart about somebody who who can kind of wrestle with tough questions uh, that that he that uh, that he can. And uh, again, these are great articles we're taking a look at. Um, another classic during this time period is Jacob Baker's "The Grandest Principle of the Gospel: Christian Nihilism, Sanctified Activism, and Eternal Progression," a doc- uh, which is treats the doctrine of eternal progression in Mormon history and and in Mormon thought and theology. Uh, yeah. There, go ahead. But I'm just going to save that. What's that? It's, the title's <laughs> indulgent. I, I, I'm just going to say there there are more discussions outside of this one. Yeah. <laughs> so. In the 2000s, I was among a few grad students who were working with Richard Bushman to sponsor a conference called Faith and Knowledge for LDS Scholars of Religion. And several leading thinkers today, I think, were well, people that I consider leading thinkers, were also participants in those early days in this conference. And Christine publishes some of the papers from uh, one of our early conferences, including Matt Bowman's Toward a Theology of Dissent and Ecclesiology, an Ecclesiological Interpretation. And Mauro Properzi's Belonging and Believing as LDS Scholars of Religion. Bowman's is, I think, particularly important and remains relevant today because he, he he's making an argument for how to dissent within the Mormon tradition. Um, he says, I believe that dissent rightly pursued strengthens both Mormons as a religious people and also the church as a body. But he criticizes a lot of dissenters' understanding of what a church is and who, where they're often invoking rights or liberal discourse about the political discourse about the state, 
but that's not quite what a church is. So he he's trying to really sort of articulate how to dissent within a Mormon tradition. And it's, again, a very brilliant article, an early, early one from Bowman. I'll just say, this is the beginnings of a very quiet giant. I mean, really. <laughs> I look forward, and it may be that it takes 10, 15, 20 years till we hear the whole of that mind. But I, I think he is a quiet giant. And I think he got it early on, uh, said quite a bit, and I hope, I hope he's, he feels welcome to say more. Well, Bowman is, of course, now a member of the board at uh, uh, a dialogue and also the uh, Howard W. Hunter Chair of Mormon Studies at uh, Claremont Graduate University. Uh, he's uh, deeply beloved by uh, many and, and really considered, I think, to be one of the leading intellectuals in the church today. And yes, you're right. I, hope, I do hope that we continue to hear more from, uh, from him. There's also a new series that, uh, that Levi Peterson starts during this time period called Thinking Globally that was guest edited by Ethan Jorgensen about the global Mormon experience. It's uh, introduced in the winter 2005 issue and runs at least up through 2008 that I could see. Um, there are a lot of really great articles that come out of this series. Um, uh, one on Germany, one on Japan. I think there are two on Finland, one on Bolivia, one on Thailand. And one of my favorites is from Armand Moss in, 2000, in winter 2008, Seeking a Second Harvest, Controlling the Cost of LDS Membership in Europe, in Europe which uh, discusses the huge costs of missionary work and sustaining the church that could barely even keep a stable membership uh, numbers uh, in Europe. And it uh, really kind of does a fascinating look at uh, how LDS leaders have thought about the investment into Europe, uh, despite declining and, and challenging conditions there. I was, of course, a missionary in Europe, and so many of the conditions yeah. that he describes appealed to me or, or were familiar to me. But I, I, this is, I think, one of the strong articles and, and shows, again, Moss just continuing to crank out the hits throughout. He really right. did. And it was, it was a giant loss that we lost him. Where were you a missionary? I was in Italy. Oh, yeah, that's, that's right. My, um, not many people. But, you know, this also correlates a little bit with the uprising of our most beloved uh, general authority and, and what was a part of the, uh, you know, I mean, this is Elder Uchtdorf. And Elder Uchtdorf and bringing in an international tone into Mormonism, as we say that we are Branching into a global religion is super important. I have been saddened by sort of a little bit of, of, of him having to step back off of the first presidency, that which has only happened once. But it's true that within, inter, and, and, and this, is, this begins dialogue going internationally, but it follows a path where the church says that it can keep up globally as a religion. Lots of research, and I love the work that uh, the Relief Society presidency of the church has done in Africa with the women of Africa, but Bolivia, of course, and, and, and Europe. But I miss the voice a bit of our beloved Elder Uchtdorf and the work that he did in Europe. And I think we were still there in this golden time where we thought we could engage in a world Mormonism. 
Yeah, it's, you know, seeing how the church, one of the great things about these articles, and, and, and we've seen this throughout Dialogue's history, is its investment in trying to understand the global Mormon experience. And it seems like we keep forgetting the lessons of, of, those, uh, of those investments. Um, and uh, yeah, but these are, these are definitely worth, uh, worth taking a look at. And again, we're seeing new organizations like the Global Mormon Studies Initiative, uh, and, and others that are that are hopefully continuing this work, and uh, we hope to continue to be the home for a lot of this scholarship. But um, yeah, there's there's uh, there's so much to say about the complex dynamics of international Mormonism. Well, uh, and I would say that there is. I have been deeply moved personally by the by the absolute faith of those that I see internationally who are Mormon, those mm-hmm. who send missionaries off to other countries and. And hope they get home in time and for COVID and whatever. And from Austria and Vienna and 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 those of my friends in Mexico and Bolivia, I really do believe that the next wave of Mormonism is international. I I I really long for Elder Uchtdorf to be a major player back again. But if not, I'm hoping that more international scholars can find a place within dialogue to write about their experience. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things that seems to be missing from this time period, and, and it kind of stuck out to me, was that there are almost no feminist articles or you know, uh, in this time period, with maybe one small exception uh, written by Kevin Barney in winter 2008, uh, now a classic article. I think it was an instant classic in some ways. How to worship our heavenly, how to worship our mother in heaven without getting excommunicated, uh, that builds on Dan Peterson's Nephi and his Asherah and tries to identify the biblical tradition of there being a, a divine consort named Asherah, the, the wife of, uh, of Elohim or Yahweh, as the basis of contemporary LDS belief in heavenly mother, and to try to open up some avenues for acceptable worship practices there. Uh, it's a fascinating article, definitely worth reading. Um, and but there's also a really smart response to it by Cheryl Bruno in the two, summer 2009 issue called Asherah Alert, uh, and of course Barney is responding to that as well. But again, a, a great dialogue on this particular topic. But that's really the only issue, the only topic uh, on Heavenly Mother, on any other kind of traditional feminist uh, topic during this time period. I, I was sort of struck by that. Did you happen to? Notice that at all? I absolutely did, and I'll and I'll just mention this. I read the article. Um, I have great hopes for a feminine scholar, of Fiona Givens. I think her voice and what she writes about an Old Testament mother in heaven and Asherah is is profound. And I am am pleased that Kevin was so brave to bring this article forward. But I think I think the article more a crack in the door. I think. Of course, the issue complex. We have Margaret Gano and other feminists. Or there are, there's not one or two waves of Mormon feminists. There's like fifteen or seventeen or thirty. <laughs> but I really welcome, um, and I've had the I've had the pleasure of working with Fiona before in dialogue on an on an article called Solace, and she's done some Sunday school things, and I am happy you bring this article up. I'm grateful that it was brought up as one. Um, we, you know, we did an entire issue in, like just last spring, 2019, on the temple and mother in heaven. It's complicated, 
But I really believe that Kevin was, I mean, many would say that what man can write about mother in heaven, but the truth of the matter is that I am happy he opened that door. And I would invite, I mean, this is an invitation to many Mormon scholars to write about mother in heaven. And, and I think in this age where we understand that gender is fluid and whatever, that, 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 that men, women, other otherness can write about this subject. And I hope that we can find a place for it. 100% agree. Yeah. Uh, so one of the other topics that is really heating up here are, uh, is, of course, the topic of sexuality, especially issues around homosexuality and same-sex marriage. We mentioned that same-sex marriage debates have become a national conversation and are kind of consuming the church, especially places in the blogger knackle. Um, and uh, so there are a number of really fascinating articles that come out during this time period. Uh, in the fall 2005 issue, there is a series of personal essays on, quote unquote, mixed orientation marriage, um, where uh, somebody sort of describes their experience in mixed orientation marriage, why they chose it. And there's kind of some critical evaluations of that, uh, of those relationships. And uh, there is then a series of responses in, in um, letters to the editor and the follow-up issues. But yeah, this was, uh, I think, the first time in, in our uh, discussion of this history where that particular topic was coming up in the uh, journal. Does that, does that sound right to you? It does. And I just really have to thank you for your scholarship in this area that you have launched out to write about it in Tabernacle and Clay, Tabernacles of Clay and discuss sexuality and Mormonism and gender. It's an important issue. And there are many uh, among us in the pews that, um, that, you know, may or may not have to deal with this. And, I, and I'm happy those articles are written. Not enough have been. And I think there again, we have an open window where more can be contributed to that topic. There were so many other fascinating articles during this time period. One that I remember discovering actually just a few years ago, um, I think maybe about five years ago, I didn't notice it the first time around, was a two-part series in the spring and summer 2007 issues by, I think the name is Chetty Cherniak, and I'm sorry if I mispronounced the name, C-E-T-T-I Cherniak. Uh, on the theology of desire, which, quote, examines the tension which arises when the puritanical practices and modernist assumptions of contemporary LDS culture are contrasted with the erotic underpinnings of LDS metaphysics and anthropology. It's really a quite smart article. I think that Chetty was maybe at the University of Chicago uh, and had some real theological training the there sometimes uh you know the two part series can be quite long and and in my reading of it at least but definitely worth reading as one of the most important articles i think that we've ever published on uh the theology of sexuality uh so definitely recommend those well and iconic because this is something that happened during the renaissance i mean we're talking about the passion of saint teresa which mm-hmm. is in your wheelhouse serving in italy you know and we're talking about these this early Renaissance work where the passion and the sexuality is combined with the religiosity of divinity. Mm-hmm. And so there again, and Mormonism always thinks that it reinvents the wheel a little bit, but but I think we're referring to back to something that is actually uh what's the word I'm looking for? Arch- arch- archetypal. 
And and we stumble on it within this article. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course, we mentioned already same-sex marriage is going on, and we have two important articles, the case for same-sex marriage and the case against same-sex marriage, written by uh, uh, Wayne Scow and Randolph Muelstein, respectively, in the fall 2007 issue. Again, this, were, this was a topic that was really consuming, at least in my world, really consuming uh, the kinds of conversations that Latter-day Saints were having. Uh, this is a kind of set of legal arguments, social scientific arguments that were being put forward here. The case against same-sex marriage that Muelstein put forward argued that marriage was already tenuous and allowing same-sex marriage would doom it, suggesting that people would become homosexuals if same-sex marriage were an option. Um, the follow-up letters to the editor are equally worth reading in fall 2008 that challenge the uh, Muelstein arguments. One saying. The logic used by Randolph Muelstein left me baffled. (laughs) And uh, uh, so anyway, again, we just see the the people, this was the topic of the day and it really shows up in the letters to the editor during this time period. Exactly. And this is where our readership shows up, Taylor. And and what I want to, what what the acknowledgement that I want to give is that our readership saw these essays And they wrote to us and they offered the foundation upon which, as we'll explore the next issues, you know, this is why Mormon Building Bridges could happen just, Mm -hmm. what, 24 months later, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a revolution or other things. And, And really, it was our readers challenging some of these very opaque voices and saying, ah, have you considered X, Y, and Z? And so... So I think it's important for us to consider this period as a ground laying for what was about to happen between 2010 and 2015. I'll say 2016. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just mention a few other quick things in this category. This was one of the most rich categories uh, that, that, that we had so far, the category on sexuality. There's a great letter to the editor responding to Cherniak's two-part series called Celestial Sex that reflects on many of the sort of unanswered questions about uh, an erotic theology. John <laughs> Gustav Rothall's uh, great uh, personal essay, Trial of Faith, is a little bit of his story as a married gay man coming back to, well, he wasn't married at the time, legally married at the time yet, but coming back to the, the church, even though he's excommunicated and, and has remained in that, uh, in that role. Uh, John is, has got some essay, another essay coming out in dialogue soon and has been a longtime contributor to these conversations, a great thinker and writer and scholar. Absolutely a stalwart in the yeah. field. Yeah. And, but I love that you'll explore this because like, it makes me blush. <laughs> We've got uh, Bob Reese's The Goodness of the Church in the summer 2008 issue with its spring 2009, several editors, letters to the editor commenting on how great it was. Uh, and you might not know from the topic of the essay or the title of the essay uh, that it deals with why, uh, how to sort of accommodate uh, uh, gay men and women in the church. Uh, in a, in a, his proposal was as a sort of second tier status. Uh, we've got the winter 2009, then round table, six voices on proposition eight, uh, which has a number of legal and social scientific analysis of what was going down with, with prop eight and the arguments for and against it. 
Um, so again, this was just a re- really kind of an all-consuming topic as it shows up at so many times in the, um, in the journal. Do you think it's any less? Um, no, but I think that there are, that's a really good question. I think that people are less inclined to have conversations about it. I think sort of, um, the, in my, you know, maybe I'm, I, I, I my reading on this is wrong. That it became less and less socially acceptable to make the kind of legal and social scientific arguments that people were making against same sex marriage that were already kind of on pretty thin ground. I think they're all, they were pretty weak arguments back then too, but they've become even weaker over time as the sort of experiment has happened and turns out mixed or uh, opposite sex marriage didn't end up dying or, you know, (laughs) so there, there are. Yeah, uh, the, the argument sort of kind of failed, I think, in uh, uh, empirically, and that's made it harder for people to really kind of oppose same-sex marriage. But again, maybe I just have uh, a, a narrow perspective on that. But I don't think so. I don't, I don't think so. I think you have a very broad perspective. And it's odd to me that this is some sort of keystone within our broader tradition of, of practice of religion of so many, so many aspects that we come back to this over and over again. I mean, mm-hmm. for me personally, not a scholar, as an artist, I think it's sort of a boomerang from polygamy and a correction of that. But, mm-hmm. but, but what is it in your professional scholarship that uh, makes sexuality and Mormonism such a returnable sort of subject matter? Well, that's I, I, it's it's interesting to me to to kind of contrast its rise and dominance in the journal's focus and attention during this time period, especially in the absence of attention to feminist issues. Yes, um, and I I think it sort of reflects the kinds of conversations that were happening in the late two thousand uh, two thousand zeros. Um, that uh, culturally feminism seemed to be less urgent than, uh, than, than gay rights issues. And, and maybe that's just where then the church's conversations were kind of following those broader cultural trends. But uh, I think it's a really good question and I wish I actually had a better answer. Actually, I think that is the answer, hmm. that we invite more, more conversation about feminism, you know, as other journals do so well. But but and they're subtle, they're subtle conversations. But I, I really appreciate you going out on a limb on that one. This is kind of what you study and what you write about. And it's odd that still at this point we are debating this this issue. And um I really appreciate the fact that as our editor, that you're sort of opening the door a little bit to more feminist writing. I, I think it's important and, and I think that might enlighten us a bit on these other topics that we kind of started talking about between 2005 and 2010. And then, then for whatever reason, a little bit uh, were put away. Uh, But I think, again, that might be a place where we move forward. Well, on that note, it is maybe worth mentioning that we have just put out a call for papers on uh, critical evaluations of Heavenly Mother, and I'm hoping that we get some great submissions along those lines. And and uh, yeah, we can't publish what, what people don't submit. So you've got to submit stuff on, on these topics Absolutely. too. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And I am there for those who will submit on this topic. And, and, and I've been super impressed. I'm just going to tag this 
podcast with a nudge towards our Sunday school, uh, our Sunday study um, experiment online, because we've had Rosalind Welsh right, uh, talk about Ina's possibly being a woman. We've had Fiona Givens give a lesson about Asherah and, and Mother in Heaven so much. And we're still dealing with the Book of Mormon, which has a deep lack of women within it. And, and while this might be a difficult call for papers, I think it's essential. And I think we need to get through it. And I really am appreciative that you're, you're making it. Well, thank you, Andy. Let's, uh, let's hope we get some good ones. So one of the interesting things is uh, that scripture, of course, a Book of Mormon studies are, are major topics uh, during this time period as well. A couple articles worth mentioning, a critique of Alma 36 as an extended chiasm, Earl Wonderly's argument, and we've seen other critiques of Alma 36 and, and uh, critiques of chiasmus as a, as a proof of Book of Mormon historicity uh, showing up in dialogues pages, but that's another important okay. one. Um, and uh, Clyde Ford's Lehi on the Great Issues, Book of Mormon Theology in Early 19th Century Perspective, uh, which is, again, a, some, something that tries to kind of locate the Book of Mormon in, in the 19th century. But uh, uh, it's, again, a quite uh, smart article. We got a lot of good uh, letters uh, recommending that one, letters to the editor recommending that one. And another one in winter 2009, Who Was Second Nephi? That's attempting to solve a kind of rather small textual issue. Uh, uh, but is a but is a smart article by Keith Allred. On other scriptural topics, we have the Prophet Elias puzzle by Sam Brown, and I believe that this is Sam Brown's first article in Dialogue. Wow. Yeah, forward again, you know. Yeah, new book coming out soon. Yeah, Sam, Sam, um, uh, uh, Nate, me, uh, Jared Hickman, a, a handful of other people. We're all kind of swimming in the same waters at, at uh, in Cambridge, same Massachusetts. And yeah. some of you actually like crawled out of the waters on four <laughs> legs and evolved. <laughs> but yeah, talk about uh, a bright light. Sam has, uh, is just one of the, one of the smartest contributors to Mormon studies. And, and uh, it's a fascinating little article that I think gestures towards the kinds of ways that he comes to think about scripture in his later writings, especially the most recent book. So people who want to trace back his thinking, that's a, that's a great place to start. And so unique because he does it as a physician, right? Mm-hmm. Not a scholar. He doesn't teach students every day. He doesn't deal in esoteria. He deals in life and death. And right now he is overwhelmed with COVID. I mean, he is at the front lines and I, and lines, and I so respect the work that he does and the energy he puts forth both towards our um, understanding our faith, but also towards uh, really battling this battle that's that's in front of us. So, so really, I thank you for bringing this up. I think he shows himself well in this first article, but but he also like when I mean he he again and again shows up and is really worth his medal in this. Yeah, he yeah he is uh, he's one of my favorites. So definitely definitely worth checking him out. Um, there are three other articles that I think are worth mentioning. Uh, one is uh, Clayton White and Mark Thomas write uh, a treatment of the story of Noah's flood that's about balancing uh, science and biblical uh, biblical literacy in the fall two thousand seven issue. 
Uh, one of the other great ones, I think, from this time period, it's also another by Clyde Ford, who we mentioned above uh, uh, as well. By the way, I should, you know, a little note that he is my father-in-law, so I should, uh, <laughs> I should maybe disclose how why I also happen to love these for other reasons too. Uh, but he writes um, Modernism and Mormonism, Jamie Tal- James E. Talmage's Jesus the Christ and Early 20th Century Mormon Responses to Biblical Criticism that really helps to understand what the G- Tal- Talmage's Jesus the Christ, what kind of scholarship it was drawing on. And, uh, and, and, and James, uh, James Talmage has popped up on my radar as well. He, he, during 1918 and a pandemic then, and a war when his sons were away, he presented himself as very neutral and then took a stand. And I really respect this, this scholar. And, and it's, it's not just a red book that we all received in the MTC. Like, this is a man who devoted himself to Mormonism and to Mormon scholarship. And I, I invite readers to, re- to reread his writings. Yeah, he's 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 somebody I think who is still crying out for a really good treatment. Uh, I think that Ford's article is a, is a great one, but yeah, really just about Jesus the Christ. I think that we do need a little bit more treat a, a bigger treatment of him. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, he just is more than a classic. Subtle, humble as a man, a family man. You know, his sons were serving in the war while he was here, and he he's like, look, I am an ardent Republican. Yet I cannot, after the singing of the Lusitania, he writes, how long, O Lord, how long? Mm. And he just says, I cannot maintain neutrality any longer. Like this Hitler character must be brought down. And, and while our, our president, Wilson, is not of my political party, I will cross over those lines to make sure that America and the world is kept safe. And I have a deep respect after this conference talk that he gave, how long, O Lord, how long? when his, ser- his sons were serving in the war and, and the plague was happening here like it is happening now. And we're, we find ourselves at a time where neutrality may or may not be an option. And, and he leads the way. So I really appreciate any attention brought back to, to Talmadge right now. Thank you. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know some of those stories. Thank you so much. The last one I'll mention in this category is a summer 2009 issue, and it's one or uh, article that it's one that I remember quite well. Sheldon Greaves, The Education of a Bible Scholar. And the reason why I remember it so well is because I read it at the time, uh, uh, you know, in real time as a Bible scholar who was just finishing up my degree. <laughs> and so uh, the, 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 the issue and the topic really stuck out to me. Greaves belonged to an earlier generation, about 10 to 15 years before me, uh, was a graduate student in the 1990s. And that's a time that you and I have discussed as being one where there was really a lot of tension between LDS intellectuals and the church. And his spiritual autobiography recounts his loss of place in the LDS church and his love of uh, modern critical biblical studies. Um, Greaves has uh, popped up uh, in a few other places, is still kind of around in, in the margins. Uh, he had left the church, uh, of course, as he discusses in the article, uh, but is, is somebody that, uh, you know, I think is, represents one of those voices of graduate students who were also just leaving the church in the 1990s and yeah. telling his story much later. Um, but yeah, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating tale. Do you have any idea where Green is now? Yeah, I think he was in Southern California uh, someplace, and I was in contact with him once many years ago, um, and I believe, so I, I think he was in Southern California, and uh, uh, maybe he might have even been working in administration or something at a university there, but I don't remember. I 
if he's listening, hopefully he'll reach out and tell us. (laughs) Well, you bring up an important point and something that I've seen pop up um, as we've seen the intersectionality of social justice and faith. And it's not necessarily interfaith work, but a pluralism, a plural, a plural plurality of faith working together to build the world. And those that 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 are scholars and and Mormon biblical scholars who, in the '90s or early 2000s, didn't find their place, you know, in this black and white community, may and hopefully found their place in other other spaces, still de- dealing with faith. And that's that's a direction that I would hope that we as a journal and we as a scholarship can go, that we can deal more with the plurality of religion. Um, I think dialogue was built on that, uh, the, the initial issue by Jean, you know, of course, uh, and Wes Johnson had letters that were a Catholic bishop and a Jewish uh, rabbi and others. I think the dialogue was to be interfaith. But I think now as many of our peers have found that the space just is too small. They've, they've reached out and branched out into a pluralism. And it's one that I really welcome. And I hope that comes back into play within, within our community. I mean, I always hope that more will come to our table and, and bring their ideas and their conversations. But, um, and maybe I just offer that as a small invitation. I too, I, I regret the loss of so many people who had a lot of potential um, to, to contribute to the church, but felt driven out during that time period. It's one that, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I think a black well, mark in our history. As an artist, as an artisan bread maker, as somebody who loves to throw a great party, mm-hmm. you know, my table is always big enough. And may this podcast, if nothing else, be an invitation for those who find themselves on the outside to come join join us at our table and we have a conversation about what they've learned. You know, anybody who has walked the trail with Mormonism has a place with us, I believe as a journal. And, and I don't think I, I am not, I can't use that word a loss. Those who we've lost because I believe in them still. Mm-hmm. I hope for them still. Mm-hmm. I, I long for their voices. I want to know what they've learned on the outside because I think it's solid and good. And I think that, that we have room to carve out a space to continue to understand it a little bit, even if it brings us criticism. Mm -hmm. Speaking of great voices that come out of this time period, John Charles Duffy is really cranking out a lot of major hits. And one of his most important ones is published in dialogue during this time period. Can deconstruction save the day? Faithful scholarship and the use of postmodernism, which is a look at, uh, I think, both the New Mormon historians and to a certain extent, the, the, uh, uh, the farms crowd as well, which is a critique of some of the kind of postmodern moves that some, uh, uh, some of those thinkers were using. It's a very important essay and I think worth still struggling uh, with. Tom Alexander is one of the people mentioned in the essay, and he replies in the winter of 2008, pointing out some conflations or inaccuracies of several specific historians. And Duffy responds in the summer of 2009, clarifying his position. But I've gone back to this and wrestled with uh, Duffy's critique of deconstruction and postmodernism, in part because I'm a big fan of those particular moves. And uh, he he, he lays out a kind of important criticism 
there. So what, um, what you, you know. see in this? Why right now? Because farms, you know, is is pinging just a little bit right now. So what do I see in this essay that was so important? Yes. Yeah. Well, basically. You know, it's one that I disagree with, interestingly, and, and I, think that, I think that I've written about this in some essay. I'm trying to remember which essay I engaged, Duffy. It might have been my, my one on scriptural hermeneutics. I don't remember exactly. But, uh, and so, so my position, I think, is laid out a little bit more clearly there. But um, Duffy, uh, Duffy is, is trying to describe, and I think does, does so with some accuracy, the, the sorts of intellectual moves that some conservative scholars are using, but he sees an inconsistency between the postmodern epistemological presuppositions and the uh, very pre-modern, or, uh, and again, I'm maybe speaking too technically here, but the, the pre-modern ontological presuppositions uh, of many church, uh, of many um, orthodox uh, uh, scholars. So, uh, you know, they'll, they'll say, oh, well, you can't do objective history, but then still believe in a first, in an actual first vision or something along those lines. So he's trying to, I think, pull out a little bit of a, a, some tensions that he sees there. You know, I think it's important because this is an organization that claims absolute scholarship, yet sometimes criticism or the, I, I, and let me just retract that, not criticism, the analysis of their arguments need to be really analyzed by serious scholars across the board and not just within house. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, and I welcome that sort of um, entree into understanding that this group, um, while it seems an insulatory circle can write whatever they want, needs to be subject to many voices. And we've seen that, you know, lo- lately with this book uh, by, John Gee, um, but that's neither here nor there. There are many middle ground authors as well that 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 have lots to do. But I really thank you for your scholarship on this. I think it's important that if the organization is going to call itself uh, peer scholarship, is open to to conversation. Mm-hmm. There are a bunch of great historical essays that come out of this time period. Gary Bergera's um, uh, identifying the earliest Mormon polygamists in fall 2005 and his two parts on Ezra Taft Benson's period as the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture in the fall and winter of 2008 are uh, really important essays. Uh, They kind of explore an underexplored period of Benson's life up until that point of his time in Washington, D.C., where just like he was getting into big fights with uh, church leaders in his later uh, apostle years, he's also turns out getting into a lot of fights with uh, other pol- politicians in Washington D.C. His personality seemed to be a little um, uh, conflicting, I guess, or, or conflict-oriented. Maybe we so could you're say. saying it doesn't. It wasn't just us. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he he wasn't he didn't shy away from expressing his very strongly held opinions about things, I guess we could say. Yeah. That anyway. is, that's really darling. There are a bunch of others that I want to uh, commend. Of course, we've got a book that comes out uh, on Mountain Meadows Massacre during this time period and there are a bunch of great treatments, roundtables and reviews of the book in 2009. Uh, fundamentalism remain Mormon fundamentalism remains a big topic of the journal, and there are lots of great articles in this era that uh, that are definitely worth checking out. I think there are about half a dozen articles on that topic. 
And the last thing that I'll note is that uh, a personal note for me, and it shows up in the journal here, that the Cambridge, Massachusetts Chapel, the Longfellow Park building burned down in 2009. And I was actually in the building when it went up in flames and we all sort of huddled out on the front lawn and watched it burn. Um, This is the ward where Harvard, MIT, Wellesley, Boston University, Boston College, Berkeley School of Music, and many more uh, uh, students especially uh, attended there for decades going back to the 1950s. It was actually the first chapel built in New England, the home to Richard and Claudia Bushman for several years and so on. Um, and has been a home to many LDS intellectuals over the years. Um, Christine commissioned a long list of remembrances and published those in, in the journal, and it's worth going back to, to reading uh, read those. The chapel has been rebuilt. The shell of the brick still stood, and they did uh, uh, more or less keep a, somewhat of the same layout that had been there before. Um, but uh, we were housed in the Episcopal Divinity School across the street for a long time wow. period, several years, as the place and where welcome. we met the church. You're welcome by another religion. Well, they charged us rent, but yes, it was it was great. <laughs> I was uh, I, I was on the team that helped to find that place uh, because of wow. my work at the Divinity School. You know, and having and, some time on the East Coast, I understand. Like, uh, oftentimes, you know, there are different temperatures of Mormonism. Some of them East Coast, West Coast, Central Mountain Range. You know, but what was going on intellectually in Boston has has permeated our culture and our scholarship so now like I mean it's it is pervasive and it is it is throughout. I mean we have uh Claudia and the and and Richard Bushman we have this is where Jean and Charlotte would gather together. This is Laura Ulrich Thatcher and others. And and I don't want to for a second uh underestimate how significant this one house of the Lord was for so many who had who were cared for in that space? As you mentioned, Exponent yeah. Two was launched there. There were exactly. institute lessons that led to uh, some early books by by feminists, you know, uh, scholars in the church that came out of that building. It's really is somebody needs to actually write a history of Mormonism through the lens of that building because it is pretty it is pretty remarkable. Boyd K. Packer was mission president there, as yeah. was Paul Dunn. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, the mission home used to be right around the corner. The church had sold it by the time I got there, but yeah, they, that's right where Boyd K. Packer was, it was a uh, mission president. Um, Note to listeners, that's a call to action right there. Yeah. <laughs> it really is. And my stepdaughter attended Berkeley School of Music, um, as a cellist and lived in, and we have board members, of course, that are all over, um, Boston. And it it remains uh, just such a safe haven and a and a thriving force of of sustainability towards Mormon scholarship that that's important and that really would be an, a fascinating sort of uh, remembrance of that building the fire those who have come through that building so yeah. so let's see what we can do about that yeah. Anything else in these issues that you wanted to talk about before we uh, wrap up? Oh my goodness. Do you think we covered enough? (laughs) There was a lot. I'll just make a little side note here. Every time I'm about to start, I always think, I wonder if this is a slow period in dialogue's history. And every time I'm blown away by how many great articles and how fascinating the history is. There has never been a slow period in dialogue's history. Well, and this is what I'm realizing is that 
that when the church is slow, we are fast, right? Like when, when those who don't have safe haven and, and sometimes it brings criticism upon the journal because we, we are, are said not to, to provide enough safe haven, but, but we provide the space that the main institution may or may not decide can or will at the time. And so I have sort of begun, and it this was a hard time for me because it leads into what was such optimism uh, for 2010 to 2015. And there again, I'm excited about what we'll discover when we dive into those years as well. Yeah. But um, but this is a really foundation time, and I'm proud of our journal. I'm proud that we have enough space for people to both. Uh, to both expand, explore, but also complain about the experience of walking this trail with Mormonism, with scholarship, and 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 sometimes we nail it, and sometimes some some people feel like like we don't provide enough space for everything. But the truth of the matter is, as I look at the journal as an inverse, as a mirror to the church. And the institution, I find great detail and great, um, like almost a marginality. Like, the, what do they call it? Um, uh, what do you call it when they have writing in the side of uh, marginalia? marginalia. Yeah. Thank you. Like that, that is where the humanity is, is within the pages of our journal. And that mm-hmm. is what I really, um, that's part of my own really connection with it and my own why I have such a dedication to it is because at the end of the day, there's a humanity and a compassion within our pages, regardless of whether the building burns down or whether, whether our organization has enough room or whether probate is happening or not. I really believe in the compassion of dialogue. And I, I believe that, um, that these human stories, those, that are willing to share part of themselves to write for our journals is apparent. And and for their sacrifice, I am happy that we get to do this and review these. So here's to the next five years, Taylor. Are you ready? (laughs) Can't wait. Can't wait. This show is part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture. You can listen to this podcast and all of the Dialogue Podcast Network shows on a new podcast app called Lyceum, which makes it easy to discover and listen to great educational audio. In Lyceum, you can also support the Dialogue Podcast Network by becoming a member for just $5 a month. Members will get exclusive episodes and the chance to discuss and engage this show with me and other listeners. So go to the App Store or Google Play, download Lyceum, and become a member of the Dialogue Podcast Network today. That's L-Y-C-E-U-M. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.